Folks, we're going to read uh, next installment in our studies in Hebrews. Um, Stephen has asked me to read the whole chapter, uh, whole of chapter 7, so we're on page 1,205. Stephen and I were chatting about this during the week, and we agreed that it's not, not the easiest chapter. I said, Stephen, don't worry about it. I will read it in such a way that really draws out the meaning. Uh, by the time I've read it, it will be clear to all. I practiced two or three times this afternoon. Uh, I feel more humble about what, what I'm going to do just now. I am going to try to read chapter 7 of Hebrews for you. Let's, let's hear God's word together. Uh, just to pick, put you in the picture, uh, when we met a fortnight ago, we looked at chapter 6, where uh, the way I described it is that the writer steps back a little bit from the Old Testament imagery, which covers most of the, the book of Hebrews, and talks in a more pastoral way uh, about how, how we might persevere and trust in God's promises. But what he's doing at the start of chapter 7, and we're, we're coming into it very cold now, he, he starts talking about Melchizedek. He has talked about him in chapter 5, not so much in chapter 6, but we're picking up again here. Stephen will make all of this clear in just a moment. Okay, Hebrews chapter 7. This Melchizedek was a king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abram gave him a tenth of his plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abram. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi. Yet he collected a tenth from Abram, and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abram, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there then still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar." For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to the tribe, in that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Other, others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he sacrificed himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who were weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Um, as Christoph pointed out, he was worried about struggling to, to read that chapter. Um, yeah, I have to preach it, so that's fun. Um, this is a chapter that, that on the surface seems very complicated. There's lots going on. But actually, it boils down to something very simple. Um, I, I, or I hope it does anyway. I wonder if you've ever seen the slogan, accept no substitutes. Um, it was originally used by Coca-Cola uh, back in 1912. Only a couple of you will remember that. Um, but since then, it has been used for a whole range of products. It's one of those slogans that's so old that it sort of entered into the public domain at some point, and everybody has used it since, from Nerf guns to Subway sandwiches to AK-47s at one point in America were uh, branded with accept no substitutes. Um, it's a slogan that, that appeals to something deep within us, that wants the very best. We want the right thing. It says to us, why settle for something less? For something that's maybe close, but not quite right. When you can have this, when you can have something better. We've talked before about how Hebrews is a, is a book written to Jewish Christians who are facing persecution and difficulties. Difficulties that seem to be becoming progressively worse for them. And many of these Jewish Christians, they're being tempted to, to go back to the culturally acceptable Judaism or to mix their the Judaism in with their Christianity to either fit in better or because some of them don't seem to think that Christianity was quite enough to replace the whole of Judaism. The writer to the Hebrews is stating to them throughout the, the opening chapters of the book that Jesus is not only better than what they had before, but is where everything in their history so far has been leading. That Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, is what every Jew has been waiting for. And to go back to life without him isn't to go back to Judaism. It's actually to reject it. And when we come to think about this chapter tonight, it's the same for us. 
When we add anything to the gospel, when we claim to be Christians but continue to live our lives exactly as they were before, then actually we're rejecting the gospel. We're rejecting Christ. When we come to to chapter 7, the the writer is dealing with a a difficult issue in these new Christians' theology. It, It seems that they're struggling to accept the idea of Jesus being a replacement for the priests and the sacrificial system. So he said some of them are getting to the point of of just disregarding Jesus completely and going back to the old ways. And for others, it it seems that they're almost happy to accept Jesus as king, as Messiah, coming from the tribe of Judah, the line of David, but they can't accept him as a replacement for the priests. After all, he, he doesn't come from the Levites or the line of Aaron, which all priests are from. And no king can be a priest. The only king that ever tried it, King Uzziah, he tried to usurp the place of the priest, and he ended up cursed with leprosy and never again able to enter the temple. So the idea of Jesus being the better high priest was one that many of these Jews struggled to get their heads around. The writer to the Hebrews wants to get this truth through to them because the meaning of of Jesus acting as our great high priest is incredible, both for these Jewish Christians and for us sitting here tonight. The writer hopes to show them and us that Jesus is a greater priest, a more effective priest, a more firmly established priest, an everlasting priest, and the only priest we as sinners need. He's saying to them, accept no substitutes. Don't let anything else take the place of Christ in your life. Don't settle for something that looks like Christianity but isn't, that you think will save you but won't. Accept no substitutes. So Christ is the greater high priest. The writer has a big challenge on his hands here. He's trying to convince these Jewish Christians that the the Aaronic priesthood, which has been around for 1,500 years, that has been a central and important part of their whole lives and their worship of God, and in fact was instituted by God himself, has now been fundamentally changed through the death, resurrection, and eternal life of Christ. How is he possibly going to show them this? Well, he reaches back into Scripture And he reaches back beyond the priests and actually right back to the beginning of the Jewish nation itself through Abraham. And he pulls this this obscure character from Genesis, this guy, Melchizedek. Hands up if if before tonight, I don't know whether you've, you've been sitting at home like Christoph this afternoon reading this chapter, preparing yourselves to come here tonight. But if before, before today, who knew or who knows the story of Melchizedek from Genesis? That's, that's, that's actually more than I thought. Um, I'm not surprised that it's not everybody. I'm not surprised that it's, it's a fairly small group of us um, and two ministers included in that group. Even in a serious, in-depth reading of Genesis, you're very likely to skip past the couple of little verses that mention him and think nothing more than, than it being a curious little incident. It was probably the same for many of these Jewish Christians. Actually, the the incident with Melchizedek only makes sense in light of Jesus. 
He's, he's one of those, those signposts in the Old Testament that say that someone important is coming. He's a picture of Christ, and through him so much is revealed to us about Christ's priestly role. Let me just give you a little bit of context for this, for the life of, or for the, where Melchizedek comes into the story. There, there's strife in the region. Lots of the, the tribal kings are at war with one another, and four of them band together and they invade some of the other lands, including Sodom, where Abraham's nephew Lot is living at the time, and they carry off the people and their possessions. And Abraham, he gets wind of this, and he goes with a, a small band of his trained men to defeat these armies and save his family. It's kind of like a Liam Neeson action film, you know, his nephew's been taken, and he's going to go and get him back. And he goes, he splits his men up, they, they strike at night, they chase them off, saving the day. Abram returns the, with the people and the possessions back to the land. He returns as a hero, riding back from battle. And this is when he comes across this curious little incident with Melchizedek. Keep the Hebrews passage open in front of you, but the Genesis one we're going to stick up on the screen here. This is Genesis 14, 18 to 20. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's the story of Melchizedek. Here we have this, this, this priest of God, of the God, that Abraham, this hero, God's chosen one, the grandfather of, of Levi, and therefore Aaron, the priest, accepts the blessing of and gives tribute to. If you read the rest of that incident in Genesis, Abram comes across another couple of kings. He doesn't do the same thing with them. He only gives tribute to and accepts the blessing of this guy. Melchizedek. This is a priest that the line of Aaron through Abram recognizes as being greater. Verses 9 and 10 of the Hebrews passage there allude to that. And this is not only a priest, but unlike all the other priests to come, this one is also a king. His name means king of righteousness. He's king of Salem, or Jerusalem, as it's later known, which means peace the king of righteousness, the prince of peace, the king of the city of God, priest of the most high God. It's pretty clear that this is a picture of Christ and how his priesthood is greater and higher than the priesthood of Aaron, which only ever existed to point to the need of this greater high priest. And the writer goes even further. He says that because we don't know the beginning or the end of Melchizedek's priesthood, it's not mentioned, we never see it passed to him or given from him, he for all intents and purposes remains a priest forever. A picture of the eternal nature that, that Christoph was talking about earlier of Christ's priesthood, again showing its superiority to what had, become, to what had come before. Verses 1 to 10 show us that Christ's priesthood is of a higher order than that of Aaron. And verses 11 to 19, they go on to tell us that Christ is a more effective priest than all the priests of Judaism. The crux of those verses of 11 to 19 is simply this, 
that following the law, trying to live a good moral life, trying to keep all the rules just doesn't cut it. As soon as a sacrifice is offered, even if it could cover the sins of man, it would only do so momentarily. And then it would instantly fall short once again. If the law could save us, if human priests offering sacrifices and interceding for us before God could make us perfect, then there would be no need of a savior, no need of a greater priest, a greater sacrifice a truly unblemished lamb. But the law doesn't save. It only condemns. Because it shows us just how far we truly are from God's perfection. It shows us our absolute need for something more, something greater, something that only God himself could do. It pushes us to look for that better hope that verse 19 puts, talks about. And now that this better hope has come in Jesus Christ, this, this eternal priest from a greater priesthood, we are no longer subject to or condemned by the law and that sacrificial system. The picture that pointed us to the reality has now been replaced by that reality. Why would people be tempted to go back to just having the picture when the real thing was there in front of them? And yet, how tempted are we? How tempted are we to slip into lawfulness? To live not in the freedom and grace that we have been given in Christ, but to add all sorts of other additional nonsense to it? This was kind of highlighted to me recently by a, a friend of mine, a, a minister's son in PCI, and he, he was chatting to one of his, his non-Christian but, but fairly sort of interested friends, and they were talking about what happened, the whole fallout from last year's General Assembly and all that sort of stuff, and this guy turned to him and asked this question. He said, if I were gay, what would I have to do to become a Christian? And my friend, he started telling him, well, you know, you, you need to think about this lifestyle you're living. You, you, you need to consider that and, and think about the biblical principles and, and think about what the Bible really says about, about, about these things. And then he sort of caught himself on and he said, actually, wait, that's wrong. He said, you need to believe in Jesus. You need to tell him you're sorry for everything you've done that has hurt God. I need to ask him to come into your life and help you to follow and live for him. That's what you need to do. Like I said, is that it? Even though I, I, I'm openly gay? He said, yeah, that's it. He said, none of us are living in a way where we deserve to be saved. We're all a mess. There are no hoops to jump through first. But he said, I wouldn't leave you like that. I'd also give you a warning. I'd say, if you're serious about this, if you give your life over to Christ, God is going to come and he's going to make his home in your heart. And if you're walking with him, his spirit is going to start changing you into the person he created you to be. The person you were before sin infected and infested you. Some things are going to change about your life. Some might change instantly. Some you're going to struggle with your whole life. But God, through his spirit and his word, is going to change you. So do you want to follow him? 
He said, the guy said, I thought it was the other way around. And don't we sometimes make it that way? We sometimes think that people have to be a certain way. We have to give them all the rules before they can come to Jesus. We're not so different from these Jewish Christians. We may not be tempted to give up our Christianity for Judaism, but very often we slip into legalism. We judge others as if we're somehow better than they are. We do things out of duty rather than love. Sometimes even our devotional lives become little more than a chore that we struggle through to tick a box or feel good about ourselves rather than this this thriving, living conversation with a God who loves us and whom we love. All made possible only by the actions of this great high priest who intercedes before the Father for us in a way that no other priest ever could. Very often we are tempted to look to less than this better hope we have in Christ. The writer to the Hebrews is telling us, accept no substitutes. We have a priest who is greater and who is totally effective in his role. There's one other mention of Melchizedek in the, in the Old Testament, and it's in a messianic prophecy contained in, in Psalm 110. And this is mentioned a couple of times in that Hebrews passage. Psalm 110, verse 4, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn the, the Aaronic priesthood was established by God's instruction. When members of, a, of the priestly families in the tribe became 30, they simply began their priestly work, regardless of whether they were good at it or not. But Christ's priesthood was established not by God's instruction, but by his oath. God only makes an oath twice in the whole of Scripture. We heard about the other time in the last Hebrew sermon, when God makes the oath with Abraham to establish the covenant that would eventually find its fulfillment in Christ. The other is here in Psalm 110, when he swears that Christ will act as our priest, making intercession for us before him, bridging that gap between us and God completely and permanently. God makes lots of promises to us in his word, promises we can trust, promises we know he will keep because of who he is. But twice, only twice, he takes these oaths. He wants us to be so sure of these things that he takes this additional step. That's how important this rule of Christ is, that God would swear him to it. It's greater, it's more effective. It's firmly established, and it's everlasting. We see that in verses 23 to 25. In the the old system, priests came and went. Some were good, others were pretty bad. When people put their trust and their faith in the current priest, they were often disappointed or let down when they left or they died or they ended up being morally corrupt. We can be the same in church, can't we? We get caught up in this, this cult of leadership, which is, which is everywhere now. 
It's infested everything. We put far too much stock into our ministers, our pastors, and in in many cases, raising them to a place of, of prominence that sinful fallen people, even those of us made new in Christ, should never be in. Essentially, we we can put them into the place of Christ in our spiritual lives. You see it all the time in in churches, these places that that become all about the minister, all about the leader. And when they who who are given all of this power mess it up, people are left devastated, broken, and the place empties. As people go looking for the next leader, they can put their trust and their faith in instead. And we are often just as guilty. We like to be in control. We like to lead. We like to have our wee place and our wee position of power. But all we're really doing is stealing glory from the only one who is worthy to be the leader of the church. When we think of ourselves as as leaders, we often just end up interfering in God's work and hurting our, our brothers and sisters in Christ along the way. Do you know the Bible never talks about being a leader? It only ever talks about us being servants. And we need to approach the work that God has called us to in that attitude. Even in areas that require that, that function of leadership, God has called me here not to lead, but to serve, to serve the one who is in charge and to serve his people. That idea of Christ as our high priest, it helps us to see that, to see that he is our true spiritual leader. When we come to God by him, he is always there, always available, never absent. He's all-powerful, so there's nobody that he can't help. Whatever we have done and however often we come, he never lets us down. His presence in heaven as the the sinner's representative guarantees that no one relying on him will ever be turned away. His interceding for us weak and failing sinners is always successful. Look at verse 25 again. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. What an incredible verse of Scripture. Christ is our great high priest. He is our only spiritual leader. Don't give anything else the place in your life that belongs to him. And don't think for a moment that you can even begin to step into that role yourself. Accept no substitutes. Nothing can do for you what verse 25 says Christ does for you. No one can save you but our great high priest. No one can bring you into God's eternal presence but our great high priest. And verses 26 to 28 are just the summing up and conclusion of this argument that the writer is making. We have the the perfect high priest, a greater priest, an effective priest, an established priest, an everlasting priest, and a priest that is exactly what sinful humanity needed. One who, although fully human, could fulfill the requirements of the law and offer a sacrifice worthy to cover the entirety of our sin. 
a priest who could break down the barrier of sin between God and man and restore us who put our faith in him to a right relationship with God. The curtain in the temple is torn. Christ, our priest, has made the way and is the way for us to come into the very throne room of our king as his beloved children. How dare we go anywhere else with our needs? How dare we look anywhere else before looking to Christ? How dare we so often treat what Christ has done for us as trivial or not give our absolute all to him? Either we are his children or we're not. Either Christ is sufficient or he's not, and he is. So lift up your voices in prayer to God. Praise his name. Confess your sin before him. Give him the thanks he's due and tell him your needs. Because Christ is there right now, interceding for you, bringing your prayers before the king. Accept no substitutes. Because for what Christ has done and is doing for you, there are no substitutes.